Hey everybody, this is Jason. Today we want to air an episode that we played a little bit over a year ago that featured Harris III. Harris is a world-known illusionist and storyteller, and he leads the story conference that happens in Nashville every September. This interview was so well received by you guys, we wanted anyone who may be new to the show to hear it again, and anyone who's already heard this episode, I highly encourage you to listen again, take notes. Uh, There are a lot of great points that Harris brings out about storytelling and show and tell and and things like that. So uh, we'll be back with a new episode here in a couple weeks, but in the meantime, enjoy this re-air with Harris III. Let's talk a little bit about your background and uh, uh, what you, I, I first got to know you as the illusionist. Um, And so uh, how did you become an illusionist? Oh man. You know, it's funny. It's a story that a lot of magicians share, which is that we, we started learning little tricks as little kids. Uh, For me, I was nine years old and I got a magic set for Christmas for my grandmother it's interesting is that it's not at all what I wanted for Christmas that year, but uh, it's the only box uh, or gift I should say that I remember getting for Christmas that year when I was nine. So I thought it was kind of dumb at first. Uh, a magician had come to my school when I was a little kid and I wasn't that impressed. I thought it was a little tacky. And I remember learning my first trick in my bedroom thinking, no one is going to be fooled by this. This is so stupid. And I went and did it for my mom and dad. They were watching TV. I'm like, hey, check this out. And uh, they were absolutely hooked. They were like, how in the world did you do that? And then uh, instantly I was hooked. And I thought, I'm, I'm pretty sure I might do magic tricks for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, two years later, I finally got paid to do my first show. I was 11 years old. And that was the start of my career as an illusionist. Wow. And so uh, were your parents like totally supportive of it? <clears throat> yeah, completely supportive. Not everyone in my family was. You know, growing up in the South in a pretty legalistic religious environment, there was this this whole idea of well, what's an illusionist? Is it really that different than magic tricks? Yeah. Is this like sorcery or witchcraft or something like that? And so I had a few extended family members that would like pull my dad aside or have serious conversations or a family that lived in other cities that actually wrote my dad letters saying, hey, you know, he shouldn't be involved in this kind of stuff. But my mom and dad themselves were incredibly supportive um, in those early days they both had kind of blue collar, you know, factory jobs. And there was only so many vacation days they had per year, including their sick days. And I remember they both were uh, traveling with me together those first couple of years. And then I got, I got so many shows. Um, they started having to separate and take them, take me to shows individually. So my dad would use his sick days, taking me to shows. And then my mom would use her sick days and vacation days, taking me to shows so that I had the ability to go do more events. And so, yeah, incredibly supportive. Certainly wouldn't be wouldn't be where I am without all the support they showed me in my younger years. Yeah, that, that that's incredible. And and so as you're moving along in this, like, I mean, what was it about magic that that just like captivated you? That made you say like, I want to do this. Uh, honestly, it was seeing the look on my parents' faces when I was nine. You know, growing up in a small town, kind of a poor family. Uh, farming community, just a couple hundred people in the town I grew up in. It was just hard to find approval. And I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't really good at much of anything. My grades were fine, but I wasn't like the smartest kid in my class. There was just nothing that really made me feel like I was good at much or was going to amount to anything. And it was just kind of living this average life. And and I remember when I did that magic trick for my parents, it's, it's the first memory I have of someone else looking at me 
with a response of awe and mm. wonder to something that I was doing. And I think that's what captivated me was that, that feeling of like, wow, they're blown away by this. And I have this, you know, this ability to do something and people don't understand and they don't know how it works and they're amazed by it. And, you know, as a, as a poor kid with no friends, I kind of latched onto that and, and, and into my early teenage years, it was actually magic that gave me the ability to connect with other people socially, gave me the ability to learn how to communicate um, in front of an audience and the, the courage to stand up in front of a room. Um, all those, all those skills were developed by me latching onto magic. Hmm. Uh, that's pretty cool. And, and so like, if, if you look at your bio, you've, you've now been all over the world doing this and, uh, that, that obviously doesn't happen overnight. And so kind of as in a condensed format, maybe what, what was kind of that process from nine years old to where you are now? And like, how, how did, how did that work for you? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it sounds like a cop out as far as an answer is concerned, but it just kind of happened, man. I, there was never a point where I sat down and thought, okay, cool. So I'm going to make a career out of this. And these are the next three steps I need to take. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember being 11 going, I want to do magic shows professionally and practicing as hard as I can and starting to book shows and made business cards and did photo shoots and the whole nine yards. And I was, I was performing on like talent shows in my community, entering talent contests and People would see me there and they'd book me to come do their Christmas party for their company um, or do something at their Sunday school class at church or something like that. And um, it just kind of grew into I was doing, you know, shows at a little slightly bigger churches and slightly bigger parties. And, you know, before you know it, I was like, I don't want to do birthday parties anymore. Uh, Not making enough money doing that. And I remember being on a cruise ship uh, in high school with it was like a school trip of some kind. And all my friends talked me into entering the talent contest and performed. And the, the cruise director was there, ended up booking me to perform the same act at the captain's dinner. <laughs> um, and that was my foray into cruise ships um, in my, you know, middle of my teenage years. And next thing you know, by 18, I'd been booked to perform in almost all 50 states and a few different countries. And it just kind of keeps ballooning. Uh, one opportunity led to the next, which led to the next. And I never advertised. I never kind of said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to move out of my parents' house and take a shot at this. It just kind of all happened. Uh, And fast forward to where I am today and I'm 33 and still doing magic, not as many events as I used to do intentionally, but, um, it just kind of grew into what it is today. Well, it's cool. And I I don't think you can, I mean, yeah, you can say it it, kind of just happens, but I mean, (laughs) it, you can't overestimate the amount of hard work. I mean, you know, just even at at a young age, you know, you're making business cards and taking headshots. And (laughs) yeah, I just, I I hear you. There just isn't one of those, you know, I can't look back and think, oh, this was the moment that I made this decision. And here's what that decision was, or these are the next steps that I took. Cause I don't even remember what they were. I just remember being 11 going, I want to do this. What do I do next year? Next thing you know, I'm 12 doing more shows thinking, what do I do next? And you just do a bunch of stuff and word gets out. Next thing you know, you're 13 and then 16 and 18 and 21. I I think when, when I turned 21, you know, that's when I moved to Nashville. That's when I got my first booking agent. That's when I started working with artist management. There was a, there was a, a series of decisions that took place, you know, when I turned 21, um, where it's like, okay, I'm ready to turn this into, this isn't just the, I'm not a freelancer anymore doing mm-hmm. magic shows. Like this is something I'm going to turn into a career. Even though I kind of already had a career doing it, it seemed, it seemed different at that point forward. 
Uh, it's that that turning pro moment uh, Stephen yeah, Pressfield yeah. would would talk about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, uh, you know, you you alluded to it. You you don't do as much you know as many shows and performances now, but you, but you're definitely still uh, very busy and very active in uh, the the production world, especially. And so, um, what have have you been in charge of story for? Uh, is it a little bit over a year now or almost two years? Yeah, just a, just a little over a year. You know, I was, I was doing some consulting with some other conferences and just kind of creating moments for other people, whether it was a conference opener in an arena and like an arena sized conference or just kind of helping oversee some programming at a small two day conference for a hundred people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I started becoming more and more fascinated with creating moments that felt magical, even if there wasn't a character like an illusionist on stage taking credit for that supposed magical thing that just happened. Um, and, and I love, I love that style of, of magical experiences. Um, and other conference started, other conferences started calling thinking, you know, Hey, we, we may not want to put a magician on stage to do the opening of our conference, but what if we did something that felt magical Mm -hmm. and really they're doing a magic trick on stage. But again, there's just not, there's not a magician there with a magic wand take, saying a magic word and saying, I'm the one that made that happen. It just happens. The magic just happens. And therefore, people don't think of it as a magic trick. It just feels like this, you know, an experience that connects with them on an emotional level and their senses. And it just feels really beautiful. And so I think Ben had seen me do kind of followed my career, watching me do things outside of the realm of just standing on stage doing magic tricks and thought, hey, I think you'd be perfect to take over story conference. And so I remember him calling me, asking me if I'd be interested in that thinking, I don't, I don't know, man, that sounds amazing, but I don't know if I can actually run a conference. It's very different to help produce some of the creativity at a conference, but logistics and registrations and all that stuff, yeah. uh, is just a whole different ball game. And so I remember thinking about it for about a month, month and a half and calling back and said, I'm in. I, I want to kind of deep dive into that, the creating sure. moments. Um, mm-hmm. not, not specifically to story conference, but just in the, the events you've done and the, the moments you've created, um, what are, what are some of the, the key elements when you begin to plan, uh, maybe it's an opener or something like that. What are some of the key elements that, that in your opinion, help create these, these great moments? Yeah. I mean, to me, it all comes back to doing something meaningful, right? And I think to do something meaningful means you're always communicating some sort of idea that matters. So I, I'm not very fascinated by entertainment anymore. I don't think there's anything wrong with entertainment. I pay to consume entertainment. I love watching a good film that just kind of makes me check out. I love going to Dave and Buster's and playing a game, just entertaining myself. Uh, but the things that drive me these days are doing things that are meaningful, that matter, that transform people and make them think about something. Um, and I think the best way to do that kind of goes back to this Maya Angelou idea. You know, everything that we do through our company um, and all of our stuff that we do through our ministry is all all rooted in this idea. And she, the way she communicated it was people will always forget what they see you do. They'll always forget what they hear you say. They'll never forget how you made them feel. Um, and if she's right, I believe she is. That means people will forget 99% of the stuff they hear in sermons. They'll forget 99% of the tricks that they see a magician do on stage. Unless during that sermon or during that magic show, they feel something. And if somebody connects with them on an emotional level and connects not just with their mind, but also with their heart, well, now they're a lot more likely to remember those tricks or remember that sermon. And so we kind of go into every situation thinking, what's what's the big idea? What is it that we're trying to communicate? What is it that we're trying to transform people to feel or think? And then 
How can we connect with them on an emotional level so that their heart and mind are in the right spot to receive and remember the things that we want to teach them and tell them? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's uh, that's just so good. I'm sitting here trying to process that, uh, how people will never forget how you make them feel. Um, because I just feel like if, if I'm going to bring it like into the church world, so many times we fall into this, the category of, okay, you know, three songs, announcement slide, you know, follow up song, prayer (laughs) message, like you, you fall into that to where if we're not careful, it just become, even for the ones who are helping create that, it just becomes the mundane. Yeah, it's too way too mundane. That's a that's a great word for it. You know, everything everything in the church is a little bit too formulaic, far too often. Um, you know, and I, I think as you read the Bible, as you read the stories of, you know, God interacting with humanity and creation, even even in the form of Jesus. You know, when Jesus was here on earth, nothing about any of those stories are expected, and yet. Every time I sit down and go through a church service, 90% of them are very, very expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and you anticipate what's next every moment. And I, don't, I think it's deeper than that. It's not just let's change up our service outline so we can surprise people and keep them on their toes like a good, you know, suspenseful movie. It's yeah. not that. It's how do we get really meaningful and stop with some of the show so that we're not just entertaining people, but that this is transformative for them. And every every church leadership team wants that. Every pastor wants it. Every creative director wants it. But I don't think they they often stop. I should include me in that as well. I think we're all guilty of it. We don't often stop often enough to ask ourselves, what are we doing intentionally to connect with someone on a soul level, on an emotional level, so that they feel something? Otherwise, it's just all so forgettable. In, in your experiences, Harris, what are the important things in storytelling that, that you feel we overlook often? And that's a great question. I think a lot of it depends on the medium in which that you're telling stories. Um, I think on a grand scale, storytelling in general, I think there's a lot of uh, lack of authenticity. Um, you know, there's a great book called Story uh, by McKee. It's kind of like a textbook for people who tell stories as filmmakers especially. And he talks about this thing called uh, show, not tell, uh, and how that ruins authenticity because – People, people are really smart and they may not be aware of how good their detector is on detecting uh, inauthenticity, um, but most human beings are pretty good at it. And so what happens is I think when there's a lack of authenticity by a storyteller, the audience catches on to that and they're kind of turned off towards whatever the agenda is. But if it's, if it's not authentic, that means there's some sort of ulterior motive, whether mm. it's making money selling tickets or trying to convince you that your worldview is true. And I think pastors fall prey to this a lot. I think a lot of the creative art that we produce in the church falls prey to this a lot. Um, we we do a lot of telling after we show people something. Um, we we are we're notorious for telling a story and then at the end standing up and saying. And the moral of the story is, instead of letting the story communicate the moral of the story and just letting letting people trusting that people are as smart as God created them to be. And trusting that his Holy Spirit is actually capable of stirring their heart and their soul and communicating to them what it is that he wanted to communicate to them. Um, I actually think that over communicating the moral of the story after the story is told is actually not having enough faith and trust in the Holy Spirit as we probably should have. Um, We feel like we have to do the job for everybody. And we walk around thinking, well, everybody's stupid, so I have to get up and tell them what the lesson is that they're supposed to learn. Um, and that's not to say that we don't ever have a chance to communicate those ideas to people, but I feel like the more that we have to say, the more we feel the need to say, 
and communicating the point of the story probably means we're not um, as good of a storyteller as we should be in the process of telling that story. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And that, like, I, I definitely agree on the, you know, if we, if we have to explain the moral or feel, feel the need and, and you may have hit the, the nail on the head when you said it's a, it, perhaps a lack of faith. I mean, because why, why are we so prone to, to assume the audience is stupid? I mean, you know, like, I know that sounds really harsh, but it, uh, I think, yeah, I think it's a, it's our agenda as the church, you know, it's what we're called to do. We're called to evangelize and go and make disciples. And therefore we're doing everything in our power. We passionately want people to believe this truth that we've discovered mm-hmm. so they can experience the same freedom that we experienced when we discovered it. Um, and so we, I don't know that we understand or believe in the power of stories and what communicating that story is. So we, Sometimes we overdo the teaching part. And I, I want to be really careful to not be misunderstood. Like, obviously, I think there's a time and place for a pastor, for a teacher to stand up on a, at a weekend service and give a message, a sermon. Yeah. Um, I, 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 but to use film as an example, just because I feel like it's an easy example for all of us to understand, like every, every film that Disney ever made had a message and these these things that they were trying to communicate to kids. Um, you know, not every film that's made for adults has that Michael Bay, for example, just makes movies where stuff blows up. I don't know (laughs) that he's trying to say much through those films, right? Just come for two hours and watch a bunch of action sequences and cool stuff's going to happen. And you're going to go, man, that was an awesome action movie. Uh, but I don't know that it's going to change much about how you think or transform you at all. Um, you know, Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg, those are directors that are they're definitely making a statement. They're trying to say something about how they see the world by telling that story. And then so many times faith-based films, what Christian filmmakers do, they're so desperate for the audience to believe what they believe that they tell the story. And then in some sort of way, there's always the character in the story towards the end that they feel like they say, here's the moral. And then they, they stop showing and they start telling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what, it's not that telling somebody the truth doesn't work. It's that if you're if you're selling them all on the idea of a story, you're you're inviting them to come listen to a story. When you start telling instead of showing, all of a sudden things feel inauthentic, and then the whole the whole motive backfires, and it doesn't accomplish what you wanted it to accomplish. So if you want to teach, teach. If you want to tell, that's fine. Just tell. That's what teachers do. Sometimes they tell people things. If you want to show somebody something, or you want to tell somebody a story tell them a really great story without falling into that temptation of, of telling at the end. That's your way of kind of going, I want to make sure they don't miss it. So I'm going to, I'm going to put my stamp of (laughs) guarantee on it by saying, yeah, here's, here's what the moral of the story was. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Uh, The motives are pure. That's why we fall. That's why we fall prey to that. I think is because I'm to answer your question in a very succinct way. we, We are so desperate for people to believe what we believe so the motive is is certainly pure. That's why we want to tell and not just show. Um, but we've got to constantly fight that temptation and find the balance. What are you learning right now that has impacted you the most? Hmm. Can I say two things? Sure. Yeah, you can list as many as you want. <laughs> uh, it's, one is actually in line with what we just talked about, the idea of authenticity and stories. Uh, I think vulnerability is one of the greatest tools of a storyteller. I think there's a major lack of it. And so something I'm learning a lot about lately is just the power that vulnerability has. 
And I think in our culture of social media saturation where, you know, there's this constant comparison to other people, I think we have this pressure to perform and put on the right show to try to trick people into liking us and all the things that we do. Um, and with that comes a lack of vulnerability, but mm. vulnerability is so powerful, man. It's, uh, uh, and creativity and art and storytelling and just in life and leadership. And so that's something I'm learning a lot about lately is just how to be more vulnerable as a leader, as a person, as a creative, as a storyteller. Um, the second thing is just kind of tapping back into our theme from story 2016 as a conference, the idea of imagination. You know, I, I'm, I am now refascinated by the subjects of wonder and awe curiosity, imagination story was partly, uh, you know, a catalyst for that. Really what happened previous to story was, uh, I set my face on fire doing this fire breathing stunt at a 4th mm. of July event. Wow. And it's some, something I've done hundreds of times and I just, I made a stupid mistake and, um, long story short, burned my face had second degree burns all over my face. And around that same time, two and a half years ago is when I became a dad, my son, my son, Jude, uh, was about six months old and he was our first kid. I remember laid up on the couch looking over at him and his eyes were wide with wonder at the simplest, most mundane things. And I started thinking about how kids see the world as I watched him grow up. Um, you know, he was in awe and wonder over so many things that I took for granted that again were to me were mundane. And I, it kind of took me back to what I fell in love with magic to begin with at nine, you know, that story I told you about seeing that look in my parents' faces. Mm -hmm. Their, their look of on one response to something that I, I had done was what hooked me. And so that, that has kind of reminded me why I do magic, becoming a father and watching my kids grow up and um, all the things that are childlike. I think we have a tendency to write them off because we think they're childish. Um, but I, I think there's a big difference between childlikeness and childishness. Uh, and so I, I'm thinking a lot lately and learning a lot lately about childlike imagination and childlike faith and childlike wonder and awe and curiosity. So since we've talked about, you know, uh, storytelling and, and events and everything, I wanted to kind of put you on the spot, Harrison. And, and what is the best event you have ever attended? And, and so not something that you were like on stage or anything like that, but just some, but the best event you've ever attended. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I'm supposed to say story, right? Back when I was just an attendee. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, story was pretty significant for me, obviously, just because of the path that I'm on now. Uh, I attended story for the first time in 2012, just as an attendee. If you would have told me, if you would have walked up to me at that conference and said someday I would be directing story and um, I probably wouldn't have believed you. Uh, but I, it wouldn't be fair for me to overlook, um, you know, my experience at Catalyst in 2005. Hmm. Um, now when I go to Catalyst, it's because I'm speaking or performing, but I remember, uh, 2005 was a pretty significant year for me. I, I got married that year. I moved to Nashville that year. Um, I was kind of done with the church that year. Uh, and I met this guy in Franklin, Tennessee, uh, a suburb of Nashville where I was living in my neighborhood. Actually, my booking agent at the time had gone to college with him. His name was Jamie George. And, uh, my, my agent, Jeremy said, Hey, I want you to meet my buddy. Jamie's in town to plant a church. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of churches in town, right? <laughs> uh, have you looked around? This is like a, you know, quintessential southeastern suburb uh, in the Bible Belt. He's like, he's different. Trust me. So he like drug me to this lunch. And I remember walking in and meeting Jamie. And next thing you know, I, I started to develop a vision for what the church actually was. That a fact that it was a group of people and not just a building that I went to once a week. And so he like shattered all my 
you know, religious stereotypes. And this is the guy that I have to credit for teaching me what it really meant to follow Jesus. And he said, Hey, you should come with us to this conference called Catalyst. And, um, you know, it was significant for me because I'd never heard speakers like Erwin McManus and, uh, guys like that. And now, now I listen to Erwin and all the things that he talks about feels so simple. I'm like, yes, obviously, duh, of course we should be doing this stuff as a church. But in 2005, it was, you know, it was acuting epiphany after epiphany because he was talking about, you know, art and creativity and, and I'd never heard a pastor talk about those things before. Um, and so I just kind of came alive because he was, he was the first person in a spiritual environment that ever gave me permission to pursue the, the life that I was pursuing Mm. and not feel like it was separate from my faith. Um, and that, that whole experience happened at Catalyst that year. So yeah, got to tip my hat to, to Catalyst Conference. Those are good people. 